السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة للمتقين ولا عدوان إلا على الظالمين وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له إله الأولين والآخرين وأشهد أن نبينا محمدا عبده ورسوله المصطفى الأمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد So welcome to um, another lesson of QP and inshallah ta'ala today we're going to be doing part two uh, the second and final part of our special uh, which was on the life and the tafsir of Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala So last week we went through the biography of Imam Al-Qurtubi we went through kind of his name and his background and his uh, his teachers and his studies and the time that he lived in uh, we mentioned some of his works and so on and so forth all the way up until his death rahimahullah ta'ala and we're now going to come on to uh, the second part of this special which is today's lesson and that's looking at a, a taking a closer look at the tafsir of Imam Al-Qurtubi and in particular his methodology in his tafsir. Uh, before I begin with that or before we go into that in, in some more detail, uh, it's important I think to just do like a brief, a very brief kind of synopsis or a brief kind of overview of how tafsir and, and the science of tafsir and its codification and its, and its uh, evolution, if you like, its development over the ages took place. So we know, for example, that in the time of the early Tabi'een, right, we're talking about all the way back to the times of the Tabi'een and so on, they had some of them written certain ajza and certain like short works of tafsir in the sense that they would compile together the narrations of tafsir that they had studied. And we have some of those famous ones like the Wa'ad Ali ibn, ibn Talha that we sometimes refer to and mention even in, in our QP lessons, which is uh, Ali ibn Talha was one of the students of the students of Ibn Abbas, and his particular collection of the narrations of his teachers and his teachers teach essentially the, the narrations of Ibn Abbas was something which was widely praised by the scholars of Islam and Imam Ahmad ta'ala said that if someone was to travel to Egypt where this collection was based, where it was kept then it wouldn't be a wasted journey in order to seek that knowledge of tafsir and there were other scholars at that time that also did something similar but the earliest works of tafsir that we have is essentially a couple of centuries after that time where, or a century and a half after that time where you have the scholars of the likes of Imam Al-Tabari and Ibn Abi Hatim rahmatullah. they were not by any means the first but that they, are, they are the earliest collections that have survived until our time today and Abdul Razak and others where they gathered tafsir and the tafsir was one of narrations primarily and that's because that was the, the general norm in the time of the likes of Imam Al-Tabari and Ibn Abi Hatim and Abdul Razak Sanani, Alihi Muhammadullahi Ta'ala, those scholars were of that generation, whether it's in uh, whether it's in, in in fiqh, whether it's in tafsir, whether it's in hadith, that they what they're narrating, they're narrating with the chain of narration. And so they would gather those narrations together, obviously in this case it being in the science of tafsir. And that continues and it develops over time. But essentially what then happened was a time came when the scholars, what they started to do was that they started to focus on one particular or, or a few particular aspects of tafsir because they found that scholars who came before them had already done the, the gathering of the narration. So for example, even you know after the time of, uh, of, of the famous collections of hadith, you have a time when the scholars who started to narrate the books of hadith or, or they compiled narrations of hadith together, they didn't necessarily go through the chains of narration anymore. For example, if you look at the works of Imam al-Nawawi, 
and others of that generation uh, and, and even before him slightly, they no longer kept uh, or mentioned the chains of narrators anymore. They don't need to anymore because those narrations have now been have been recorded in books, those books are well known, they've been spread everywhere, they're so widely spread that if someone was to come and try to change something or to add something or to delete something, it would be very easy to spot that difference because the manuscripts of those books have been widely spread across the Muslim world. And so that's why you have scholars that would then delete or, or omit the chains of narrators because it's no longer a necessary part of preserving the knowledge of this religion. That tradition has already been codified and verified and established by the scholars. You have something similar in Tafsir, where after a, a period of time, scholars came and they decided that they no longer needed to do what Al-Tabari did, because Al-Tabari did uh, all of that, and Ibn Abi Hatim did something similar, and Abdul Razak did something similar, and those scholars of those earlier generations had done that. By the time of Imam Al-Qurtubi, now we're looking at the 6th, 7th century of Islam, what they're looking at now is to focus on aspects of tafsir that they consider to be extremely important. And before Ibn uh, Al-Qurtubi, you have the likes of Ibn Atiyah, and inshallah ta'ala, I think that will be, you know, inshallah, in one of the forthcoming uh, tafsir specials that we do when we do another batch of these uh, specials where we look at some of the uh, important works of tafsir, the tafsir of Ibn Atiyah, the tafsir of Shawkani, the tafsir of Ibn Kathir, these are tafsir that are also extremely important in terms of looking at tafsir of Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin al These are important tafsir for us to kind of have like an overview of how tafsir developed and also some of these most important works. But essentially they came to a time when now they're not looking at, for example, gathering narrations, but what they're looking at now is what is, what is the important aspects of tafsir that they want to focus upon. And so this is essentially what al-Imam al-Qurtubi did. He's from that generation where he doesn't want to just gather all of the narrations of tafsir because he himself is referring to al-Tabari. He himself is referring to, uh, you know, to, uh, to Ibn Abi Hatim and others. What he essentially wants to do now instead is he wants to focus. doesn't need to mention all of those narrations, but he wants to focus on a few aspects of tafsir that he thinks are extremely important and are beneficial for others to also focus upon. And so this is the time period that Imam al-Qurtubi is in. If you were to look at, for example, the chronology of the, of the development of tafsir, or the history of tafsir, or the evolution of tafsir, however you want to phrase that particular thing, if you were to look at that development in a timeline, this is the time period in which Imam al-Qurtubi exists. They're no longer gathering the narrations of tafsir, and that's why his tafsir isn't as extensive, it's not as long as the tafsir of Imam al-Tabari, for example, but it's also not as short as that concise as, and as concise as some of the tafsir that would come later on. So for example, the tafsir of Shokani, the tafsir of Ibn Kathir are generally speaking shorter and more concise because they come at a far later period. And when they come in that period, now what they're trying to do is they're trying to summarize those greater works and bring it down into something which they consider to be more easily readable and more easily digestible for those people that want to study the knowledge of tafsir. And Imam al-Qurtubi therefore his focus on his tafsir is something different to the focus of Imam al-Tabari. Something different to, for example, the focus of Ibn Kathir. And al-Qurtubi is not the only one that made this focus in his tafsir, but rather it is something which other scholars did as well. But if you were to look at the most famous, well-known works of tafsir, those other tafsir are not, are not as well-known as the tafsir of al-Qurtubi. Imam al-Qurtubi's tafsir is one that has 
taken, if you like, the Muslim world by storm. It's something which Muslims across the world have since his time and until our time today. It is something which they have continuously uh, studied and, and read and, and, and printed. There are so many editions of the book of Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullahu ta'ala. So before we begin, this is uh, the tafsir of Imam Al-Qurtubi. This is the particular edition that I have, which is the Egyptian print uh, of Darul Hadith. And there are many, many prints of Imam Al-Qurtubi's work. And something which shows you the importance, this is a 10-volume edition. Uh, but there are others that are, that are much longer than this. And there are others that are shorter in terms of size than this as well. But essentially, that's just you know the way that publishers print their works and the, the kind of like size of the script and how much footnotes they include or don't include and so on. I don't think, uh, personally speaking, that this is the best print and edition to buy. Uh, but I bought this many, many years ago when I was still a student in Medina. So this is a very old uh, print, relatively speaking, that I have. There are better prints that are now available. And it's something which is important. But if you're going to actually buy the Arabic of any of these works, if you're one of those people that wants to go back to the original source, you want to read Qurtubi in Arabic, you can read and study Arabic, or it's a reference book that you want to, or Tabari and others, it's important to look at the edition. Right? It's important to look at the edition that you buy. Don't just buy anything just because it's, it looks nice or it's got a nice cover or you know it, it looks like it'll go nicely on your bookcase or something else. That's not the reason why uh, you buy it. Imam Qurtubi or anyone else's tafsir, you have to look at the edition. And what you're looking at in terms of the edition and the publishing is the work of the editors and what they've done in terms of, of, of going back to the source manuscripts of these works and making sure that it's as accurate as possible. Because now, in our time, unfortunately, there are so many editions, especially of books like this that are so popular, that there are many people who don't actually go back to the source work. They don't actually go back to the original manuscripts of these works. But what they're essentially doing is that they're looking at other people's works and they're taking from them. Well, they're not really doing their due diligence in terms of these works. So when you're going through the old books of tafsir, the old books of hadith, like a Bukhari and Muslim and other, there are so many prints available now. It is important to look at those prints, something which is extremely important. Most people don't pay attention to this kind of stuff. They just look at price point or they look at uh, maybe like quality of paper or something. And those things are nice and they're good and whatever, but you want the most accurate edition. But anyway, that's like a side point. So the edition that I have is a 10-volume edition, which shows to you that Imam Al-Qurtubi, and we will mention shortly that he says that he tried to keep it concise, but as we understand and as we know, even, even Imam Al-Tabari considered his work to be somewhat concise. Right. So the word concise or the word summarized is relative to a time and a place and an understanding. As far as I know, Imam Al-Qurtubi's tafsir is not available in English in, in its entirety. I, I have come across previously, but it was a while ago, and maybe someone can look this up and, and enlighten all of us uh, on the chat. Uh, I think that someone did a translation of either a portion of the tafsir or maybe some of the surahs of the tafsir of Al-Qurtubi. Uh, I think that someone did something to that extent. Whereas in terms of a full, complete uh, 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 translation of Al-Qurtubi's tafsir, I'm not aware of it. And it's something which, you know, as you can see, would, would take a great deal of work and effort because it's essentially 10 volumes in the Arabic. And if you were to translate that, then obviously because of the eloquence of the Arabic language, the English is most likely going to be more than those 10 uh, volumes. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Okay, let us go to the Tafsir al-Qurtubi and look at the methodology of Imam al-Qurtubi in his Tafsir. I think we mentioned last week some of the uh, the words of praise that were given concerning this tafsir. Al-Imam al-Dhahabi, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, 
that this is a tafsir that is extremely great and it is something which has spread across the Muslim world and it is complete in terms of its objective right? and that is something which is uh, you know which is um, which is something which is amazing Ibn Farhun said it is from the most amazing books of tafsir and from the most beneficial of among, uh, of them and Ibn Imad al-Hanbali he said and his tafsir the tafsir of Imam al-Qurtubi is a tafsir that gathers the madhahib the methodologies of the Salaf, all of them, and it has many, many great benefits uh, in that. And Imam Al-Qurtubi's tafsir is actually called Al-Jami' Li-Ahkam Al-Qur'an. So the name of the tafsir of an Imam Al-Qurtubi is Al-Jami' Li-Ahkam Al-Qur'an. Right? And as we mentioned last week, right, a lot of the books of tafsir are named after their authors. And similar to it is in uh, the books of, 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 of hadith. Right? So the books of hadith have now uh, become very, very easily, uh, or, or the way that we refer to them uh, and the way that we recognize them is by the names of the authors. So we'll say, for example, Sunan al-Nasai and Sahih al-Bukhari, right? and, and, and uh, you know, like, uh, and, and, and other similar works like Jami' al-Tirmidhi, for example. Same in tafsir. Right? We say Tafsir al-Qurtubi, Tafsir al-Tabari, Tafsir bin Kathir, Tafsir al-Shawkani, Tafsir al-Sa'adi and so on. But actually all of those works, for the vast majority of them, have names other than the names by which they are commonly known. And as we mentioned last week, there's something which is important to remember, something which is important to focus upon. So the name of Tafsir ibn Kathir, for example, is Tafsir al-Quran al-Azim. Right? That's what it's called. For example, the Tafsir of al-Shawkani is called Fath al-Qadir. Right? And so each one of these tafsir actually has a name and a title that was given to them by the author, but they just became well known. They became famous by the names of the authors and they became ascribed in that way until it became the norm. Right? They became the norm in the way that people spoke and the way that people refer to them now. But it's important, I think, especially for a student of hadith or a student of tafsir, that they are at least familiar with those names of the work so that if, for example, someone was to say that I read in al-jami al-ihkam al-Qur'an, Right, you would know that he's referring to Tafsir al-Qurtubi. Otherwise, you're kind of stuck and you don't really know what's being referred to. Easy to become confused. So Imam al-Qurtubi named his work Al-Jami' Li-Ahkam Al-Qur'an. Al-Jami' is like a compendium, it's like an encyclopedia. Al-Jami' is something which gathers a great deal of information, almost like an encyclopedia. Li-Ahkam Al-Qur'an, Ahkam Al-Qur'an essentially means for the rulings of the Qur'an, which shows to you right off the bat one of the main focuses and the main objectives of an Imam al-Qurtubi is tafsir. And Imam al-Qurtubi places a great deal of emphasis on the ahkam al-Qur'an. Right? All of the different rulings that can be deduced from the verses of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's what his focus was. So his focus wasn't to gather just narrations. His focus wasn't to look, for example, at history. His focus wasn't to look at, for example, uh, you know, different stories concerning the Qur'an and so on. His major focus or his main goal is to deduce from the book of Allah all of the many different rulings that you can get. And that's not necessarily pertaining only to fiqh and the fiqhi rulings. There are many other issues that can be derived in terms of rulings and benefits from the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But obviously a great deal and aspect of that is the rulings of fiqh and the rulings in terms of the Quran and the rulings that a person can apply in terms of their own life from the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi in his introduction to his tafsir, he mentions the reason for authoring this tafsir, the reason why he wrote this tafsir. 
And he said, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, and this is like at the very beginning of his introduction to his book. He says that when the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one that gathers all of the different sciences of the Sharia, and it is something which uh, it is something which was given to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He said that I wanted to spend a great deal of my life focused on it, and I wanted to spend a great deal of my effort expended towards it. That I would write ta'liqan wajizan. I would write a concise commentary of the Quran. Right? So he calls it a concise wajiz, means that it's something which is concise, something which isn't overly long. And clearly, as we know, over time that word you know, had different meanings, right? It's something which uh, different meanings. Imam al-Bukhari ta'ala, has over you know thousands of narrations in the Sahih and he calls it al-Mukhtasar, he calls it a summary, right? Because that is a summary in relation to what is thousands and thousands of narrations that have been narrated from the Prophet wasallam. His six, seven thousand is a summary from those tens of thousands that have been narrated. Likewise, Imam Al-Qurtubi is saying that this is a concise commentary of the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in which I mentioned benefits of tafsir and issues to do with language and issues to do with grammar and qira'at as well as replying to the uh, to the innovation and the misguidance of those people that went astray. And he said, and I mention in it many ahadith that speak to the narrations of or, or to the deduction of rulings and the revelation of the verses of the Quran. And reconcile between those two, meaning those ahadith that are mentioned that pertain to the verses of the Quran and make clear from the statements of the Salaf and those who follow them after in later generations that which is unclear from the tafsir of the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so this is Imam Al-Qurtubi saying that his goal, his, his reason for writing this tafsir is that he wanted to have a book that is easily accessible to people that focuses on the on the ahkam uh, of the Quran, the rulings of the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he wanted to merge that with the hadith that speak to something which is very similar as well as many of the other issues that are related in the books of tafsir. One of the things that is very clear in the work of Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala is his, the people that influenced him. There are a number of individuals, a number of famous books of tafsir. There are many, the ones who influenced Imam Al-Qurtubi and the ones that he refers to in his tafsir are many. But there are some that he mentions quite often right? and some of them are well known and so I wanted to mention some of them and this is obviously in addition to last week when we spoke about him referring to some of his teachers by name. When he would say, for example, that I went to so-and-so of my teachers and I asked him and he says, said this or I heard from my teacher that he said this or I narrated from my teacher that he narrated such and such a narration and so on and so forth. Right? That's one thing. Here though we have, um, we have a clear indication of some of the scholars of Tafsir, some of the well-known scholars anyway, that Imam Al-Qurtubi would refer to and he often refers to throughout his Tafsir. From amongst them is Imam Al-Tabari so Imam Al-Tabari, more or less everyone that came after him re- references his work. They refer to him. Because Imam Al-Tabari did something which uh, was unsurpassed for his time and that is that he essentially gathered the vast majority of the narrations of hadith. Why right? He chose the most important uh, narrations of tafsir. He chose the most important and what he considered to be the most pertinent narrations of tafsir and he gathered them together with the chains of narrators. And so everyone that kind of comes after Imam al-Tabari is dependent on Imam al-Tabari. And his narrations of tafsir, by the way, you won't even find some of them or a good deal of them, you won't find in the books of hadith. 
So the scholars of hadith don't necessarily mention these narrations of tafsir, and that's why the tafsir of Al-Tabari and Ibn Abi Abi Hatim and the scholars of that generation are so important because you don't necessarily find them in the books of hadith, right? So Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Muslim and those books of famous hadith, you don't necessarily find them in terms of uh, the narrations of tafsir, in terms of them being so extensive and expansive in the way that these other works of specialized tafsir are. So Imam Al-Qurtubi is often referencing Tabari and it's often mentioning often often mentioning the position of Imam Tabari and the position that he chose and what he said and what he considered to be the strongest of positions in verses of the Quran. That's one. Number two is a scholar by the name of Abu Ja'far al-Nahas. And Nahas was a scholar of the Arabic language and he has a number of important books concerning the meanings of the Quran and the and the unfamiliar words of the Quran. He has a book called Gharib al-Quran and a book called Ma'ani al-Quran and they focus on Arabic aspects of the Quran, the Arabic language and, and the grammar of the Quran and the unfamiliar words and what they mean and taking them back to their root words and, and evolving them from there and so on and so forth. And so Imam al-Qurtubi often refers to him for this particular aspect because one of the, as we will mention shortly one of the things that Imam al-Qurtubi focuses on in his tafsir is the Arabic language so in addition to Hakam al-Quran he focuses on the Arabic language as well so Manastar refers to quite often is Ibn Atiyah Ibn Atiyah is from the scholars of Andalus as we mentioned last week and Ibn Atiyah predates Imam al-Qurtubi by some years and so Imam al-Qurtubi often refers to the work of Ibn Atiyah and Ibn Atiyah you can see the influence of Ibn Atiyah upon the work of Imam Al-Qurtubi because Ibn Atiyah is someone who his work is similar in some ways to Imam Al-Qurtubi. So Imam Al-Qurtubi seems to have taken some of his methodology because Ibn Atiyah also doesn't focus on narrations but rather he focuses on Arabic language, he focuses on ahkam, on, on rulings, he focuses on qiraat and these are many of the things that Imam Al-Qurtubi will also do as well. He also references Abu Bakr ibn Al-Arabi Right, Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi is the author of the famous book and, and Ibn al-Arabi, this one is the famous Maliki scholar, not the philosopher. There's two Ibn al-Arabis that are famously known. One is the philosopher and the other one is the Maliki scholar. We're talking about the Maliki scholar, Ibn al-Arabi. And Ibn al-Arabi has a famous book called Ahkam al-Quran. And Ahkam al-Quran is essentially looking at only the verses that have fiqhi rulings and deducing them. And that is the difference between Qurtubi's Ahkam al-Quran and Ibn al-Arabi's Ahkam al-Quran. Ibn al-Arabi, if the verse has nothing to do with tafsir or with, with, with fiqh and with rulings of fiqh, he won't commentate on them. He will just leave them and continue and until he comes to the next verses that do speak about this issue of fiqh. Whereas the tafsir of Imam al-Qurtubi, even though that is his focus, it isn't something which he uh, you know, which is just going to focus on only, but he will speak about other verses as well, even if they don't contain rulings of fiqh necessarily. Also from the people that he benefited from is Al-Mawardi, Ali ibn Muhammad Al-Mawardi. Tafsir Al-Mawardi is something that we refer to uh, not on a frequent uh, basis, but it's something that sometimes I will refer to in QP lessons. You may have heard me say that Al-Mawardi said. Al-Mawardi, one of the uh, the things that he did in his tafsir that makes it different or makes it very, uh, you know, very... Um, very good as a reference point is that he essentially gathered all of the different sayings of the scholars. So in a hadith, if there's like 10 different opinions, whereas others may only mention three or four or five, he will mention all 10 and he will tell you who said what. And sometimes he mentions positions that you don't find in the other books of tafsir uh, very commonly. 
So Al-Mawardi is someone that he also referred to and someone that he was influenced by. Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi himself then also influenced others that came after him. So you can see from the benefits of a work, when you see that a work or a book is something which has been accepted by scholars who came after, is referenced and referred to, is something which they quote from. And this person or the scholar that authored this uh, particular work, whether it's in tafsir or hadith or fiqh, whatever it may be, he's considered to be a reference point that others will quote from, that others will refer to, that others will mention his positions. It shows to you not only the status of that scholar, but the status of his work as well. So, for example, from the scholars who often refers to Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi is Ibn Kathir. Rahimahullah Ta'ala in his tafsir, Ibn Kathir quotes from Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi. Likewise, Al-Imam Al-Shawkani, Rahimahullah, quotes from Imam Al-Qurtubi. Likewise, Abu Hayyan Al-Andalusi, also from the scholars of Al-Andalus, who came after Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi. He also quotes from the tafsir of Imam Al-Qurtubi. So the scholars who came after him were people who then started quoting from him. So he's influenced by a number of people, a number of scholars, and then he goes on to influence others who came after him. And as we said before, his tafsir is considered to be that important. The Hadi is there a book of tafsir that came after, except that some mention or some reference will be given towards the tafsir of Imam al-Qurtubi. Imam al-Qurtubi mentioned in his tafsir, in his introduction, a number of, um, a number of conditions that he placed upon himself essentially his methodology in his tafsir and he called them his shurut or his conditions was sharti fi al kitab he said and my conditions that I place upon myself in this book he said number one that I mention the position of the scholars and name who those scholars were and if I mention a hadith I will mention who those hadith were collected by he says because it is said that from the blessing of knowledge is that you ascribe the positions of the scholars to them and you mention the collectors of hadith and you narrate the hadith to them, meaning that you mention who narrated that hadith or collected that particular hadith. He said because too many times in the books of fiqh and tafsir, a hadith will come without mentioning who the narrator of the hadith was, nor mentioning where you can be found. So the scholars, and this was very common, especially in the early books, they will simply mention the hadith. For example, the Prophet ﷺ said, Actions are judged by their intention. But he doesn't mention the narrator, which is Umar radiallahu an. He doesn't mention the Sahadith in Sahih Bukhari. He just mentions to you the text and moves on. And that's because that scholar was on the was 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 working on the basis that you're a person who has sufficient knowledge to be able to research and find the Hadith, or it's something which should be well known to you because you're at a certain level in your knowledge. But clearly, Imam Al-Qurtubi is saying by the time of his time, which he was speaking about, like you know, again, seven eight hundred years ago now, he's saying even at his time, it was something which not everyone was able to do. So he says that sometimes a hadith will come and we don't know where it's found. We don't know who narrated the hadith. And so those people, he says, who are unfamiliar then with the books of hadith and they don't have experience in finding hadith and they don't understand the difference or they don't understand how to differentiate between what is authentic and what is inauthentic, they may leave that hadith or may be uh, unlikely to accept that hadith or just be in a state of confusion, not knowing is that a hadith that I, a hadith that I can accept or not accept. Where can I find it? Where can't I find it? And so this is a condition that Imam al-Qurtubi placed upon him. And that's why Imam al-Qurtubi mentions the names of the scholars. He mentions them in the in the opinions of tafsir. He'll say, for example, Ibn Abbas said, Mujahid said, Sa'id ibn Jubair said, Ata said, Tawu said, all of them. He will mention their names. Imam al-Tabari said, and so on and so forth. And he will mention the position of the scholars of fiqh. The Shafi'i said, the Maliki said, uh, in Abu Hanifa said, and so on. He will mention 
the position of the scholars of fiqh alayhim rahmatullahi jami'an. And that's what he does. And if he mentions a hadith, he will mention that it was collected in such and such a work or it was narrated by such and such, a, such, and such a companion radiallahu anhum. This was a condition that he placed upon himself. And one of the nice things about reading these introductions of works as you look throughout the history of our tradition and you see how it evolved over time. You know, you look at, for example, something like Imam Al-Tabari and his conditions that he placed upon him in his tafsir, that, you know, the way that he, his methodology in his tafsir and how markedly different it is from the conditions or from the methodology of Imam Al-Qurtubi. And between them is like 300 odd years between them. But so much has changed in those three centuries of Islam in terms of the level of knowledge and in terms of the level of students and so on that each one has to cater to their particular time and their particular place and the people that are around them in terms of their level of knowledge and understanding and so on. And that's something which continues throughout the Muslim history until our time today. And so essentially sometimes what we're doing today is we're looking at a commentary of a commentary of a commentary. Right? That's what we have to do because that's something which we need in our time now to be able to understand because it's very difficult for the vast majority of people to go straight to Imam Al-Tabari's tafsir, they would find it extremely difficult. Just a, a few weeks ago, I had a, a close friend of mine who's also a student of knowledge, he's a graduate from a, an Islamic university. He came and he was mentioning to me that he had some, uh, you know, some lessons in tafsir and so on. And he was asking about a number of narrations and so on, and not being able to understand uh, how and where to find those narrations from. So I said to him that I think that you should go to Imam Al-Tabari's tafsir, go through Tabari, because Tabari will mention those narrations, he will mention who said them, he will sometimes commentate on them and so on. Like there's no more extensive extensive collection of narrations when it comes to tafsir than the tafsir of Imam al-Tabari. And he kind of said to me, yeah, but that's such a long tafsir, like it's going to take me so long to go through that. And that's because it is the case that it's extremely long. Sometimes a single verse will, will have so many narrations that Imam al-Tabari will mention. And sometimes those narrations are long. And sometimes Imam al-Tabari is repeating himself because he's mentioning similar narrations that have come through different chains of narrators. But there are slight discrepancies or slight differences in wording and in the way that those narrations have been narrated. But if you really want to understand tafsir, you have to go back to Imam al-Tabari. The tafsir of the Salaf is contained in books like the tafsir of Imam al-Tabari and the tafsir of Ibn Abi Hatim and so on. But the point is here that because the time has changed so much, to go back now to something like al-Tabari when we can go to a work that is easy and more accessible, and that's fine, like generally speaking it's fine, there's no issue in doing that. But if you want to go back to the source, you want to go to that level up, then you have to go back to those works. It is similar, for example, someone who's studying hadith and says that I'm just going to read Riyadh al-Salihin, right? Or I'm just going to read, for example, uh, you know, for example, I don't know, some other work of, of later hadith, some other collection of later hadith. But you're not really going to understand the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ and understand the science of hadith until you read in its entirety the works of Bukhari and Muslim and Abu Dawood and Nasai and Tirmidhi and Ibn Majah and those other scholars of hadith. Right? You can't understand the Sharia until you've been able to do that, and that's something which is extremely important for the student of knowledge, not to be a, not to have read, for example, you know, a full work of tafsir, uh, you know, even if it's something which which isn't even a major work of tafsir. And that's why in our Ramadan program, as you know, something which we're focusing on now that we read these complete works of tafsir. It's not how is it possible for a Muslim, let alone a student of knowledge, that they haven't read the full tafsir of the Book of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. And we know its importance and we know the Qur'an and we love it and we respect it and we honor it. 
But we haven't read the full tafsir of the book of Allah Azza wa Jalla, even a short book of tafsir, let alone the long. I'm not talking about Tabari now or Al Qurtubi. I'm talking about like the books that we are doing the readings of, like Al Jalalain and Tafsir Al Sa'di, to read the full and complete tafsir of the Quran. And likewise, for a person who, you know, as we all do, love the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and want to emulate him and follow him and, and, and follow his Sharia and follow his Sunnah, that we haven't read the books of Hadith. We don't know his Sunnah because we've never read Bukhari and Muslim. But we claim to be people that are following his sunnah. How can you make such a claim when you haven't gone back? And it's not like those books are unavailable. It's not like there haven't been many of them now translated into the English language or they're beyond uh, the people's, you know, people's ability to, to be able to take from. And so, inshallah, I hope within a couple of weeks, I'm going to make an announcement here um, and elsewhere about a program that, inshallah, I will be starting soon. But anyway, that's for another time. But it's something which uh, pertains to this issue in terms of its importance, and I think it's something which is which is greatly needed. Going back to Imam Al-Qurtubi's uh, methodology, he said, and, and so we mentioned, the first thing that he said was that he would mention and ascribe positions to the people that said them in a hadith to their books. He said, and I have excluded from my tafsir many of the stories of the mufassirin, of the scholars of tafsir, and many of the accounts of the historians, except for that, which is necessary, and what I have to mention in order to give tafsir of these verses of the Quran. And instead, and in its place, what I have done is I have focused on the verses and the and the rulings that can be deduced from these verses, so that a person may understand what it is that these verses are referring to. So what is essentially saying is that my tafsir doesn't need to mention all of those narrations, all of those historical accounts, all of those, for example, Israeliyat. He does have Israeliyat, but not as many as other works of tafsir. And that's because he doesn't focus on those issues except where it's needed. So for example, if there's a, a cause of revelation that needs to be mentioned, he'll mention it. If the tafsir requires mentioning a historical account of something, or for example, some account of the seerah, or some account of history, he will mention it. But actually what he does is he doesn't focus so much on those issues, but instead he focuses on other things that he considers to be pertinent to deducing the rulings of those verses and understanding the tafsir of those verses. So he says, instead, what I have focused on is the causes of revelation, the tafsir, the un- unfamiliar words of the Quran, and the rulings that can be deduced from these books, of, from these uh, verses of the Quran. And he said, and if the verse does not contain any rulings, meaning any fiqh rulings, then I will mention its tafsir without its rulings. And so that's why you will often find Imam al-Qurtubi, when he goes through verses, he will often say after the verse, at the beginning of his commentary of a verse, وَفِيهِ, I don't know, مسائل, وَفِيهِ مسائل, There are seven issues in this verse, seven points that we need to discuss, ten points that we need to discuss, twenty-five points that we need to discuss, and so on and so forth. And essentially what he's doing is he's calling them مسائل which is the way that we would speak about issues of fiqh. Matters of fiqh and points of fiqh are often referred to as masail. And it is often the same wording that is used by Imam Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala in his tafsir. Uh, Imam Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala, he said in his tafsir, I did this tafsir as a reminder for myself and as a means of attaining goodness on the day of judgment and as a means of continuation of my good deeds after my death. And he said, and I called it Al-Jami' Li-Hakam Al-Qur'an Wal-Mubayyinu Lima Tadammanahu Min As-Sunnati Wa-Hakam Al-Furqan That's like the full title that he gave, but it is more famously known now as a tafsir of Imam Al-Qurtubi Rahimahullahu Ta'ala.
one of the things as we said that an Imam Qurtubi Ta'ala does in his tafsir is that he focuses on issues like the fiqh rulings, issues like for example the Arabic language, issues like for example the qira'at, issues for example like the uh, the, um, the unfamiliar peculiar words of the Quran, what is called as gharib al-Quran. And if you were to look at all of those issues that he's focusing on, whether it's qira'at, whether it's Arabic language and different facets of the Arabic language and grammar, or whether it's to do with the fiqh rulings, all of them essentially are intertwined together. Because in order for you to understand the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you have to have a good grasp of Arabic. You have to be able to understand the qira'at, because as we've said before, sometimes they give you an additional meaning, an additional understanding of the Quran, an additional point of contemplation of that verse. And you have to understand the rulings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to be able to understand and deduce from the book of Allah azza wa So what Imam al-Qurtubi focuses on is essentially all working towards his main goal and objective. That main goal and objective is looking and deducing, looking at and deducing the rulings of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And just so that I, uh, before we go on to some of the more detailed issues that, that we find in his tafsir, Imam al-Qurtubi, uh, I don't know if we mentioned this last week, but anyway, Imam al-Qurtubi is from the Maliki Madhab. He's from the scholars of the Maliki Madhab. But despite this, Imam al-Qurtubi in his tafsir doesn't blind follow his Madhab. So if he finds, for example, that the position of the Maliki Madhab is a weaker position and he considers the evidence to be somewhere else, as a scholar in his own right, he will follow the evidence. And I wanted just to give an example of this so that we can see how this works practically. In the statement of Allah Azza wa Jalla in the verse in Surah Al-Baqarah 187 concerning the verses of fasting, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the permissibility of eating and drinking and having marital relations during the night. Those verses. One of the masail that he mentions, it is the twelfth mas'ala that he mentions, is the difference of opinion amongst the scholars concerning the person who eats during the day whilst they are fasting in the month of Ramadan, he eats by mistake. Right? So someone is fasting in the month of Ramadan and by mistake, forgetfulness, they eat and they drink. What is the ruling of their fasting? The position of the Maliki method that Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah, mentions himself, the position of the Malikis is that that person has broken their fast, they must make it up after Ramadan. They've broken their fast, that fast is invalid, they must make up the day after the month of Ramadan. But the position of many other scholars is that actually their fast is valid. It's okay. They ate and drank by mistake, out of forgetfulness. They stop eating and drinking and they continue with their fast and their fast is valid. He says, Rahimahullahu ta'ala, sahih wa bihi qala al-jumhur. The correct position and the position of the majority of the scholars is that the one who eats or drinks out of forgetfulness doesn't have to make up that day. And that first fasting that they're, ha- they're currently on, that day that they're currently fasting, is complete. And that is because of the hadith of Abu Hurairah that the Prophet said, if someone eats or drinks out of forgetfulness, then that is a provision that Allah has given to them and there is no harm upon them. Right? And so Imam Al-Qurtubi is essentially saying that the madhab that we follow of Imam Malik rahimahullah ta'ala in this issue, its position is a weaker position because the position of the majority is backed up by a very clear and uh, very explicit hadith from the Prophet I want to very quickly uh, go through in terms of the methodology uh, two things. Number one is the things that Imam Al-Qurtubi focuses on in his tafsir, the way he makes his tafsir and it is the way that the scholars of tafsir 
from the Salaf always make their tafsir. We've mentioned it before with the Tabari and others, but just so that we can see it again and emphasize that point with the tafsir of Imam al-Qurtubi. And secondly then, how Imam al-Qurtubi mentions the stronger positions. If he chooses a position in his tafsir, how does he uh, how does he how does he elaborate on that, or how does he say, or how does he mention which positions he considers to be the strongest in his tafsir? So when it comes to the methodology of Imam al-Qurtubi in his tafsir, the first thing that he does, as the scholars of tafsir have mentioned in terms of their methodology generally in tafsir, is that he makes tafsir of the Quran with the Quran. So for example, in the verse in Surah Al-An'am, verse 82, when Allah says, "Alladina amanu, walam yalbisu imanahum bi-zulm." those people who believe and they don't mix their belief with any type of oppression. He says the meaning of oppression here is not the oppression that we understand when you harm someone or you hurt someone. It is the meaning of the oppression that is mentioned in the verse of Surah Luqman in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says concerning shirk, which is associating partners with Allah, inna shirk Indeed, shirk is the greatest of oppression. And that's based upon obviously the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha as well. And so Imam Al-Qurtubi will make tafsir of the Qur'an with the Qur'an. The second way that he makes tafsir, and that is also mentioned in this verse, is that he makes tafsir of the Qur'an with the sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And so if he finds something from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, then it's something which he will make tafsir with. For example, the verse in Surah Al-An'am, verse number 12, I think, or 13, which Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala says, كَتَبَ عَلَى نَفْسِهِ الرَّحْمَةِ Allah Azza wa Jalla is obligated upon himself mercy. He says in the hadith in Sahih Muslim of Abu Hurairah the Prophet said that when Allah created creation, he wrote in a book that he placed by himself subhanahu wa ta'ala that indeed his mercy overcomes his anger. And it's a well-known famous hadith of the Prophet So Imam Al-Qurtubi will often mention a hadith, he will often mention verses of the Quran that help to make tafsir of the verses of the Quran and the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The third thing that he will do in terms of methodology of tafsir is that he goes back to the tafsir and the statements of the companions radiallahu anhum ajma'in. So if he uses the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he uses the Quran, the Prophet uh, the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he then goes back to the statements of the companions radiallahu anhum ajma'in. For example, in the verse in Surah Al-An'am also, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَا تَأْكُلُوا مِمَّا لَمْ يُذْكَرِ اسْمُ اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ وَإِنَّهُ لَفِسْقَ And don't eat from that upon which Allah's name has not been mentioned, meaning the meat that hasn't been slaughtered in Allah's name, for indeed that is fisq. What is the meaning of fisq? He says that Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu has said, it means that it is sinful, that it is disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's something which he commonly does. He will mention the statements of Ibn Abbas, and Ibn Mas'ud, and Zayd ibn Thabit, and Ali, and Aisha, and many of the other companions, radiyallahu anhum ajma'in. He also mentions the statements of the tabi'in, and that's something which we also know that the scholars would do, that if they uh, would find, that if they, in the tafsir, and it's something which we see very commonly in our QP lessons, they mention the statements of the, of the tabi'in, the students of the companions, radiyallahu anhum ajma'in. For example, in the statement of Allah Azza wa in Surah Al-An'am, uh, say that Allah Azza wa Jal is the one who has all power, that he should send upon you all ability to send upon you a, a punishment from either above you or from beneath you. He mentions the statements of Mujahid, rahimahullah ta'ala, 
and Sa'id ibn Jubayr and others that are above you means that Allah Azza wa may send upon you the likes of uh, you know the likes of the stones that Allah Azza wa sent a rain a rain of stones or floods or some type of scream or some type of of tormenting wind as Allah Azza wa did with the people of Ayad and Thamud and other nations he says and this was the position of Mujahid and Sa'id ibn Jubayr alayhim rahmatullah as well as others and Imam Al-Qurtubi also often quotes from the scholars who came after that, that time. So after the time of Imam Al-Qurtubi, uh, the, the time of the companions and the time of the Tabi'een he will also mention the statements of the scholars who came after them. One of the things that Imam Al-Qurtubi focuses on in his tafsir um, is the Qira'at. So after mentioning or alongside mentioning those positions, he often focuses on the Qira'at. And Imam Al-Qurtubi will mention the Qira'at that are mutawatira, the one known Qira'at that we read from, you know, the ten Qur'at that we often refer to or, and that we've done a QP special on that you can refer back to as well if you want to go back and visit and refresh your minds. But he also mentions the Qira'at that are shadha, the Qira'at that are shadha, that aren't read anymore, they're not the mainstream recitations, but that they were the Qira'at that's of, of all the recitations of some of the companions and the scholars of the past. So for example, in the verse in Surah Al-An'am, in verse number 14, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَهُوَ يُطْعِمُ وَلَا يُطْعَمُ He is the one who provides and none provides for him. يُطْعِمُ وَلَا يُطْعَمُ In the narration or the reading of Al-A'mash and Mujahid and others, they would say, يُطْعِمُ وَلَا يُطْعَمُ Which basically means that he is the one who provides and he has no need of your provision. So in the first meaning, the first Qira'ah, he, he provides and he doesn't need provision. Right, he doesn't need you to provide for him. In the second qira, which is the shad one, he doesn't provide, nor does he have any need for that type of sustenance which you would be able to give him anyway. Meaning that the way that we would give sustenance, the rizq that we would give in terms of food and drink, Allah Azza wa has no need of such things. So Imam Al-Qurtubi will also often mention that and in, in that particular instance he says, and even though the qira is shad, it has a good meaning. Meaning that, that meaning is something which we can add in terms of our understanding of the tafsir, of that particular verse. And Imam Al-Qurtubi also has a high dependency on the Arabic language in his tafsir. Someone that focuses a great deal on the Arabic language and the way that it works and, and its syntax and its morphication morph, and its all of those different elements of the Arabic language, something which he works on. And he often mentions the works of Sibawai and Al-Mubarrid and others from Al-Nahas and others from amongst the scholars of the Arabic language. And Imam Al-Qurtubi, for example, will look at single words and he will go into their meaning and into their depth and what it is that they're referring to and how they work in the Arabic language. He will look at, for example, different letters that when they're added to words, how they change the meaning. So as we often know in the Arabic language, a wow or a fa or a lam or a ba can change the meaning because those letters, depending on the context of the word that is being used, the context can change the meaning. They have multiple functions as we've, you know, as we've seen um, a number of times when we've done tafsir of, of Surah Al-Shams uh, and A'la and others, that sometimes the meaning of those verses such as men, right, men can have different different meanings depending on different types of uh, uses in the Arabic language. And so that's something which Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah also focuses on. He also focuses on, for example, the grammar of, of, of the verses of the Quran because the grammar can change the meaning of the verse in terms of the way that it's turned out, something which um, you know requires obviously some 
type of specialist knowledge of the Arabic language. And Imam Al-Qurtubi also focuses on issues of eloquence of the Quran and eloquence in the Arabic language and those types of issues as well. I want to conclude by mentioning just very briefly, if you're reading the tafsir of Imam Al-Qurtubi, as is the case with many of the early works of tafsir, one of the things that you will find is that sometimes you're bombarded with information. There is so much that is coming at you because Imam Al-Qurtubi may have pages and pages upon a single verse and he will mention the different statements and the different positions and narrations and mention texts and so on and he will bring them all together. How do we know then from all of that, how do we sieve out what is the position of Imam Al-Qurtubi? And that requires you to read obviously number one but also to read with attention and carefulness such as is the case with the tafsir of Imam Ibn Kathir and Al-Tabari and others. They will often mention the position that they consider to be strongest in one way or another to understand that methodology and the way that they can or the way that they express themselves in their tafsir, the different ways of expressing themselves in terms of them choosing their opinions will inshallah ta'ala allow you to understand then what does Imam Al-Qurtubi hold to be the strongest position in the tafsir of this verse, for example. So one of the ways that Imam Al-Qurtubi will do this is that he will outright say what he considers to be the strongest position. So for example, he will say, sahih and the correct position, sawab the correct position, sahih this is the correct statement, this is the truth concerning this. Right? So for example, in the verse in Surah Al-An'am, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking about the different animals and birds and everything that Allah Azza has created, He says, There is not a single creature upon the earth, nor a, a bird that flies with its wings, except that they are nations like unto you. Al-Mam Qurtubi says, How are they nations? They are jama'at. They are nations like you are nations. In the sense that Allah Azza wa created them, Allah Azza wa provides for them, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will, will judge between them, Allah Azza wa will, uh, will, 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 will write any oppressions amongst them. He says, and others from amongst the scholars said, that they are like you in the sense that they also glorify and praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, just as you praise Allah Azza wa just as the believers from amongst you praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And others said positions that are incorrect, Imam al-Qurtubi says. For example, that they are like us in the sense that they will be resurrected and they will go into Jannah. Or that they have tests and tribulations in this life and so on and so forth. He says, and the correct position is the first one. Right? So this is an example. Imam al-Qurtubi says that this is the correct position and he always says that. Another way in which Imam al-Qurtubi ta'ala, says that something is correct is that he says that it is the strongest of the positions. And there's a difference between the two. The first one, he says it is the correct position. It is like a, a, a catch-all statement, a general statement, which shows that every other position he considers to be weak. al-aqwal, this is the strongest of the positions or the most authentic of the position means that even though he holds that position to be correct, it is possible that some of those other positions may be true or correct as well, meaning that he doesn't have the confidence to say that this is definitely the correct position, as opposed to the first example. In the second one, it's like, no, it is the correct position, but it's possible that another one may also have a degree of strength. And he often says, when he's speaking in this way, الأقوال, or الأقوال, الأقوال, the best of these uh, positions, or the strongest of them, or the most apparent from amongst them, that's essentially what he's referring to. And there are, uh, and there are examples of this. Um, for example, in the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal in Surah Al-An'am, and all these examples are from Surah Al-An'am, 
بالليل. He is the one who causes you to die at night. Allah Azza wa Jal, uh, Al mentions a number of positions that the scholars mention concerning what that means. How does a person die at night? What is, that, what is the reality of that type of death? And then he said, and it is said that no one knows its reality except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is the strongest of those positions. This is the most authentic of those statements and Allah Azza wa knows best. Another way in which he shows to us the position that he chooses is that he says the chosen opinion that I choose. Right? It is the position that I choose. Right? And that is also him choosing a position but he seems to be, and Allah knows best, of a lesser degree than the first and the second one. Because he's not saying that it is the strongest or that it is the most authentic. He says the position that I choose, meaning that there is a big difference of opinion here. The position that I have chosen is this one, for example. Uh, and this is also found in his in his tafsir. One of the other things that Imam Al-Qurtubi may do is that he will mention the the statements of a scholar or a position that they had or an oration that they mentioned and he will say that that is incorrect. So he doesn't choose a position but he dismisses the ones that he considers to be weak. So for example he may say that is a mistake. It is a false position or a false statement to have. This is far-fetched and so on and so forth. So for example in the statement of Allah in Surah Al-Am verse 73 to Allah belongs all dominion on the day that the trumpet will be blown. He says that the trumpet that is blown is the trumpet that we know, uh, you know, that the angel will blow in on the first time everything will cease to live, on the second time everything will be resurrected. And he says, but some of the scholars said that sur, right, which is which which means horn, sur here is actually suwar. What it means is that it is the plural of an image. Surah means image. Suwar is the plural of image. And they said, some of the scholars said that that is what is being referred to here. It is the plural of image. And so he said, uh, Imam al-Qurtubi says, and that is a position that is far-fetched. It is something which is weak. Right? He says, and even though this position is possible, meaning that it obviously in the Arabic language, it is the plural of the word sur or suwar, is the position of the, the of sur is the plural of the word surah. He says, But rather it is a rejected position because of what we mentioned from the text of the Quran and the Sunnah. And he has other ways that he can, he also mentions this. I think that it will be uh, too long if I go through each one, one by one. But the point that I wanted to mention to you is by reading these tafasir and actually paying attention to the methodology of the scholar, which by the way, you pick up as you read more and more, you become more familiar with this style of writing as you do with any author and you become more accustomed to it. You learn to pick up the way that Imam Qurtubi has chosen something or what he is mentioning. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Okay, some of you have mentioned that the tafsir of Al-Qurtubi is uh, the certain volumes that have been translated. I remember a while back someone showed me a volume or two of the tafsir of Al-Qurtubi that has been translated. I would be interested to know if someone has one of these uh, translations, either of Aisha Buli or Buli or anyone else. If you could look at the the, the 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 preface or the introduction given by the translator and see if it's a word-for-word translation or if it's a summary of the translation. It's a summary of the tafsir. So sometimes what, what people do is when they translate it into English, they summarize it themselves and translate a summary as opposed to the full text. 
And I think that would be interesting to know. Five volumes at the end of Surah An-Nisa. Okay, five volumes at the end of Surah An-Nisa. So it's going to be a long work. I assume these volumes are pretty big, not small volumes. Abu Khalil asked the questions, why are there different editions of the tafsir? There are different editions because people, uh, you know, these books, as you can imagine, are like a thousand odd years old, or some of them even older, some of them seven, eight hundred years old. And so what we have, what has been passed down from generations, are manuscripts that were handwritten. Now, when someone writes a manuscript, by hand there's likely to be mistakes, or there's likely to be errors, because people are writing them by hand. It's not like today where everything is recorded. In fact, even in printed press, we have mistakes that can be made because they have to be proofread and so on. And so what you will have is someone will go to those manuscripts, maybe there's five, ten manuscripts that you can find of Al-Qurtubi's work. He has to go and verify, he has to essentially cross-check each one to make sure. Now maybe one of the, the people that wrote this uh, or copied out the tafsir of Al-Qurtubi, they were called Nusakh, right? These were the people that would copy out things by hand. If they're copying out something, maybe they missed something here. Maybe one person copied from another one's manuscript and so on. So there's many ways, right, without going technical into detail. And so one of the things that in our time, alhamdulillah, a lot of effort has been made in many of the works of Islam. In fact, the majority of these works that you see behind me on these shelves are people who have taken these older works and essentially have verified their manuscripts, some to a very good uh, level and, and, and a very good uh, quality, and others less so, each one according to their own capability. It is at the end of the day, human endeavor, and there will always be mistakes in human endeavor. And so when one publishing house takes one, another one may come up with another one, and so on and so forth. And obviously there's an element now of business in terms of these books and how they're sold and manufactured, published, and so on. Uh, but that's why you have these different editions. The, the position of the student of knowledge, though, is to be able to kind of like go through this maze of books, even though they all got the same title and they all look the same. If you were to go to a good Arabic Islamic bookshop, you will see probably a dozen editions of Sahih Bukhari. Your job is to know which one of these editions is the most authentic, the most correct, accurate, precise in terms of Sahih Bukhari. Right? Because some of them have mistakes. And I have come across numerous books in which in the books of Hadith there are mistakes in terms of the names of narrators and the way that they've been written. And, and, and sometimes in the text and the metan of the Hadith itself and so on, it's very common. Because those people, you, you, not always, are experts in what they're doing. So the person that's doing the editing of Tafsir al-Qurtubi isn't necessarily a scholar of Tafsir. They're not necessarily a scholar of Arabic language. They may not even be a student of knowledge. It may just be something which they're doing, or it may be a job for them, or it may be, I don't know, whatever it is. Right? And so sometimes the best uh, editions that you can get are the ones that have been checked either by well-known people who do this stuff. Like this is what they do. There are scholars who have dedicated their lives to to editing uh, books and verifying them, and others who, for example, do them as part of their PhD thesis or their master's thesis, especially in the Arab world, where your master's and thesis and PhD can take four, five, six years each one. And so what they will often do is that they will look at a book and they will say, okay, this is what I want to do my PhD on. I'm going to verify the manuscripts of this book and do a study of this book. And so what they will do, because it's something which is a PhD, it's going to be critically analyzed, he's going to have his professor, he's going to have a panel of, of, of other professors that are going to then do a essential critique of his thesis, then it's more likely to be of a higher standard. Uh, how does one know which manuscript of the original work should, we should take? You ask someone who knows. That's the best way. To ask someone who knows uh, and, to, and to, you know, kind of become accustomed to this. How do you benefit from all these different editions without comparing them to find differences? You don't benefit from one of them. You don't need to benefit from one of them. You just need a single one. That's what you need to do. And that's what you have to do and, and to 
focus on that particular one. Um, it's just you need to know which one. And that doesn't mean there's going to be major mistakes. It's not like, you know, generally speaking, there are some publishing houses which you just avoid because they're known for a very poor quality of work. But generally speaking, they're not going to be missing pages and pages. We're talking about accuracy. We're talking about precision. Right? We're talking about, for example, people mixing up names or people, you know, and, and you find this unfortunately also in, then in English because the translations are done by people who don't know this. So what they will do is they will take, for example, Qurtubi's work, for example, or any work you want to look at, and they will take the book that they had, the, the copy that they had. And so they may make mistakes in the translation based upon the mistakes that you find in the original source work because of the edition that they're using. And that's something which, you know, which is also fairly common as well. Okay, um, Naeem is asking what is the difference between various tafsir bin Mathur, example, Dur al Manthur versus tafsir al Tabari ibn Hatim versus ibn Kathir. What is the additional benefit we will get uh, from Dur al Manthur or ibn Abi Hatim if someone already has read Tabari's tafsir? Also, seems like most of them are bringing some narration, same narrations of ibn Abbas, Mujahid, etc. Can you understand the difference between Qurtubi and Tabari versus Razi? But it's confusing and I time to differentiate. Okay, so there are levels to this. The first level is that you you want a basic understanding of tafsir. So, for example, our our Ramadan tafsir readings are aimed at this to get a basic understanding of tafsir. We go through a single book of tafsir, like Jalalain, like tafsir al-Sa'di, and that gives you your basic kind of understanding of the tafsir of the Quran. Or even what we do in QP, but obviously at QP we're going at a very very slow rate and we're going into a lot of detail concerning each and every single verse but essentially it's gathering all of the narrations of the Salaf and telling you this is what it is in QP in Jalalain we're just taking the work of Jalalain or now currently uh, Shaykh Abdurrahman al-Sa'di rahimahullah ta'ala the next level now is when you want to expand upon this right and when you're expanding upon this now what you're doing is when you're going through the book of Al-Tabari and Nabi Nabi Hatim yes there will be a lot of repetition but one of the benefits of reading those works is that repetition is something which helps you to remember. I have, for example, you know, some of our teachers read Sahih al-Bukhari 20 times. If you were to ask them, do you memorize Sahih al-Bukhari? They would say no. But if you were to ask them about most of the hadith in al-Bukhari, I know that they will be able to tell you that it's in Bukhari and who was narrated from and who's in the chain. And that's not because they've memorized the book, meaning that they haven't sat and memorized the book, like, you know, memorized it the way that we memorize the Quran. But because of how often they read it over and over, it's like someone, for example, who listens to Surah Maryam all the time, all the time, all the time. They're reading Surah Maryam. They just love to hear Surah Maryam or Surah Al-Kahf or another Surah of the Quran. Do you memorize Surah Al-Kahf? No. But if he was to listen to it or someone was to say, uh, you know, to start reading, they would probably be able to follow. And maybe and you will see this often in children. They listen to certain Surahs of the Quran over and over. And before you know it, they can almost recite it from memory. It's not because they've sat and actually memorized, it's because they're so familiar with it. And that's something which is important. The scholars of old wouldn't just read Bukhari once. They would read it over and over and over again. And that's why, for example, in, you know, in fiqh, they say that a person doesn't become a scholar of fiqh until each and every year, every year, once, they go through all of the chapters of fiqh once a year. It means that you're taking a book and you're reading it over and over and over again. And our teachers had memorized things like Bulugh al-Maram and these books of hadith and these books of of um, you know these books of um, uh, these book of these books of of, of of fiqh and so on, not because they've necessarily memorized it in the, in the traditional sense of memorizing in the way that you memorize something, but because they've read it over and over again. And then obviously there are other benefits in terms of you know Ibn Kathir Rahimahullah Taala will 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 take a lot of the narrations of al-Tabari that he considers to be weak, that he doesn't consider to be very strong, and so on. That's like a different issue. 
uh, and, and you know this is like a long discussion in and of itself but the point is that to read those books there is always benefit because even if it's repetition and something which will make you accustomed to uh, reading the Quran right and that's why we're always trying to read tafsir read tafsir because the more that you read it over and over again over and over you become familiar with it so if someone was to ask you now for those of you you know that have gone over the notes over and over again of surah fatiha you will know the general position of the scholars of the seraph when it comes to the tafsir of those verses did you sit and memorize no but because you studied and revised and that is how majority of knowledge is no one you know very few people sit and have that memory to be able to memorize everything but you read it over and over again that repetition is something which sticks then in your mind and Allah Azza wa knows best okay Abu Khalil saying uh, Aisha translation is a summary okay which is what I thought but anyway uh, inshallah ta'ala uh, even if it is a summary it is something which is still very good and something which is needed okay so inshallah we're going to conclude there barakallahu feekum and inshallah ta'ala I will see you next week so next week inshallah we will continue with our usual tafsir and we will go on to the next uh, group of surahs which begins with surah al-fajr bi-idhnillahi ta'ala وصلى الله وسلم على محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته